Hi everyone. Before we get started, I just wanted to give a warning that in this episode we revisit the topic of suicide. So if that's a difficult one for you, you might want to skip this episode. Hi, I'm Ann Basin, and this is Are We There Yet? Understanding Adolescent Grief. Today's guest is Charlotte Maya, author of the memoir Sushi Tuesdays, which I just finished reading last night. And I heard Charlotte on one of my favorite grief podcasts, Grief Out Loud, which is produced by the Dougie Center up in Portland, Oregon. It's a great interview. I really recommend listening to it. And I was so impressed by the way she talked about parenting her kids through their grief in the aftermath of their father's unexpected death by suicide. So I was delighted to learn that she lives near me and was willing to come into the studio today. So welcome, Charlotte. Thank you, Anne. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. So um, just to clarify, I've loosened up the way I think about adolescent grief because I know your kids were actually quite young when your husband died. Mm -hmm. Um, But when kids experience death that young, their capacity to comprehend and process that information, both cognitively and emotionally, is quite limited. So as they go through adolescence, that grief continues to develop along with them coming up in new ways as they mature and as their capacity to process their grief increases. So additionally, you found love again after your husband Sam died and married Tim, who has two older kids who had lost their mother to cancer around the same time as Sam died. Same year, but the kids were older. Right. So I feel like you've seen a lot of very different kids go through grief as they were growing up. Yes, I have. But backing up a little, I just want to know... Um, a little bit about why you decided to write a memoir and how it came about. I mean, were you, did you think of yourself as a writer before? Had you published anything before that? I hadn't published anything before that. I am an English major. I went to law school, so I'd done a lot of writing, more technical writing, not as much creative writing. When the kids were about to start first and third grades and were finally in school at the same school for the you know, some of the same hours for the first time. One of the things I was really looking forward to doing was writing. My husband died shortly thereafter. And it's funny to me now because I don't know what I thought I would be writing about. (laughs) And because obviously what I ended up really writing about was Sam's death and Mm -hmm. his suicide. I felt like suicide, we don't talk about it very much. And... I felt like this was a story demanding to be told. Mm -hmm. I was really afraid of being ostracized Mm. because of how Sam had died. Mm -hmm. And when the policemen came to my home, they said, we will tell the children that their father died. Right. But you have to tell them how. Mm -hmm. And we recommend that you tell them the truth because you do not want them to find out from somebody else. Right. And the kids were six and eight years old. At a time when nothing made sense, telling the kids the truth actually made sense to me. Yeah. Obviously, I didn't tell them all the details. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the three of us fit in one chair. So I I told them the truth of Sam's life, that he loved them with everything he had. And I told them the truth of his death, that he had killed himself. It was hard for me to understand. I was 39. Yeah. 
it was so hard for the little ones to get their minds around that. It's confusing for all of us. I I mean, I believe every part of our physiology is wired for self-preservation. So something isn't working right when there's a suicide. But telling the truth, my kids knew they could count on me for honest answers to really hard questions. Yeah. And to start with that foundation yeah. is so important. And then to keep asking questions. So as they got older, you know, children sort of revisit their grief at each developmental stage. And what a six-year-old can understand is different than how a 10-year-old understands is different than how a 17-year-old understands. And, you know, they're, those kids are 22 and 24 now, and they are still processing, still oh, grieving, yeah. still finding their way. I am going to turn 60 this year. And I am still understanding, still processing my mom's death. So it's it's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. Yeah. And it's a really enriching process, which it seems like you've already figured that out. Well, but the kids have to figure it out for themselves yeah. too, which as a parent can be very hard yeah. to watch the kids struggling and suffering so much. Absolutely. And you can only do so much for them. Yeah. At some point, you kind of hand them the baton for the their own leg of the race. Yeah, I love that you really um, talk about that in your book, about especially towards the end, about letting that go and realizing they are in charge of their own healing. Um, I think as a parent, that's really hard for all of us to understand, no matter what your life circumstances are. But I think how you respond to it makes all the difference. Um, And it just seemed like reading your book, you had so many opportunities to be honest and to make space for their grief. And to me, those are really important. Mm -hmm. They're the most important things. I think children often get ignored in the whole grief process. Yeah. Um, Especially, you know, if they're laughing and playing then you think, oh, they're fine. But you don't see them at home in bed at night when they just fall apart, right? That's where as a, as the surviving parent, you know, you hold them, you do their, your best. Yeah. But even when they don't look like they are suffering and grieving, um, there's a lot of sadness inside, yeah. a lot of confusion, feeling abandoned and guilty for a very long time. Yeah. And I, I was going to say, while you were talking, something that came up for me is just that you said, you know, it resurfaces at every stage of development. And one of the things I think about is how kids really carry their grief 24 mm. seven. And when you see it, when they're expressing it, that's when it's overwhelming them. But for the rest of the time, it's not like it's not there. They're just managing it. And all of that managing takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of, takes a toll. So um, I think that's really hard for parents to, and I see that with my own kids, certainly just going through COVID, we had to keep reminding them, I see that this is hard because For them, they're processing it, processing it, processing it, but they're not speaking it or even asking questions until it's really a lot. Well, we get a lot of messages too as a culture. I think as Americans, we're 
in general, we're very uncomfortable with grief and sadness and yeah. emotions. And so we get a lot of messaging, especially young men get the message, but women too, that it's better to be stoic and then you're strong. And yeah. that's met with a lot of approval. Whereas yes. tears are scary and people don't know what to do. Or if I'm the one crying, then I find myself saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But when we are more comfortable having those real emotions with each other and being able to just be with each other in those spaces, it's not easy, but that is everything yeah. to just show up and be there for whatever it is, angry, yeah. confused, sad, because yeah. it's all of it. And when you're in those moments, as hard as they are, there's sometimes some of the most. Well, to be seen in that space yeah. and to have the honor of seeing somebody else in that space. Yeah. I mean, that taps into our deepest humanity, I think, because yeah. grief is love, right? Grief mm -hmm. is love wishing it had more time. And the grief doesn't end because the love doesn't end. Right. And I think I wish I could save my kids from their continued suffering because it's so hard to see people you love so much suffering. Yeah. It's the worst. Yeah. But when I think about it myself and I, and I think, um, well, I still suffer and I don't like suffering, but I do like the fact that I think about Sam when our youngest child graduates from college sure. and it makes me sad and it pisses me off all over again. <laughs> But it also reminds me of who he was, how much we loved him, how much he loved us. Mm. If love were enough, he would have stayed. Right. But sometimes people get sick. And I don't want to lose that. And that's always the, the hard part, right? Holding on and letting go. Mm. continuing to live our life. I do believe that living our lives with passion and joy and generosity is what honors our loved ones most. Yeah. And holding on to those loved ones, mm. but not being stuck mm. in the grief. It's mm. a, it's a, it's a journey. It's a balance. Yeah. It requires both. Yeah. We don't forget. We yeah. don't want to forget. Yeah. Yeah. That, concept of being stuck is a tricky one too. I think for adults, it's fine to say like, let's not get stuck in our grief because stuck in your grief really to me means depression. Mm -hmm. It's when you can't find your way out and that's what depression is, right? But for kids, I don't like the word stuck because I think it has some judgment in it. And there's a kind of stuckness mm. with kids grief where it is kind of embedded in their identity because it happens when their identity is developing it's really in there it's a big piece of them so the idea of stuck might sound like oh you got to get rid of it one of these days and you can't yeah. and you don't want and to you don't want to it's your parent your parent is always going to be a big piece of you but sometimes well kids a lot of kids who have an early loss will struggle with depression and anxiety, yes. Yes. no matter what you do, no matter what, no matter what they do. So I really try to get that piece of judgment out, out of there mm -hmm. because I want parents and kids listening to this to understand like, however it works for you, 
it's okay. Yeah, how you find to hold on to it. I'm glad you brought up that point. For me, anger is a very powerful emotion, right? Yeah. There's a lot of energy around anger. And I did feel a lot of anger. I sure. had no idea that Sam was suffering so much. I think it's important to feel that anger because there is a momentum around yeah. anger, but it's exhausting to be angry all the time. Mm. And so I didn't want to live angry. Or to hold it. Right. Or to pitch a tent in mm -hmm. angry and yeah. hang out there for a long, long time. Yes. I wanted to visit anger and feel it and process it in a way that was healthy for me, where I didn't hurt myself or anybody else. So for me, that meant running or meditation or yoga. Right. Running was a very powerful and effective way to pound out a lot of mad. And some days we're still mad. But being able to kind of move with that energy instead of having that angry energy just sort of swirling inside and stuck that's and, the kind of stuck i yeah and about. i can see with kids especially maybe boys that well i think it's really hard for girls too because girls are more um, socialized not to be angry how did you kind of try to teach them what you were learning about, about anger yeah as they were going through it well i think anger is one of the few emotions boys are allowed to have mm. and sometimes it can be very toxic. So I tried to find for them the physical outlets that they liked, whether yeah. it was baseball or soccer. Yeah. My younger son played football in high school mm -hmm. and that is a very emotional game yeah. for the kids. Mm. I think I really tried to be present for the kids when they were experiencing whatever they were feeling yeah. when they were mad when they were sad my younger son right after his father died when he was six he would say things like nobody is ever going to be as good as daddy and there's certainly a sense in which that's always going to be true for him yeah right by the time he was 16 17 and in high school and taller than his father was and you know now at that point he's saying things like everyone said dad was such a great guy but i think he's kind of a jerk mm -hmm. who leaves his wife and two little kids so they're a very angry perspective and understandable because he had been abandoned now i don't think that suicide is a conscious choice. I do believe that it is an illness, but that is true. And also it is true that the child was abandoned. Yeah. So holding both of those things. And in those moments, I'm not going to have a conversation with my kid about how suicide is just as fatal as an undiagnosed cancer or a sudden heart attack. It just looks uglier from the outside. No, no. right then <laughs> what my child needs to hear is, yep, your dad abandoned you. Yeah. And yeah. it super sucks. I think you can even feel that way when your parent dies of cancer. Absolutely. Yeah. I Absolutely. Mean, to a kid, that's just logic. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I only say that about cancer because it's true that that element would be there no matter what. I think with suicide, it's so much more intense because yes. ultimately they take that final step. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And like Sam, for example, left a note that said essentially, I'm sorry, and I love you. And when the kids were little, they would say, you know, I, I understand that daddy was totally discombobulated. Mm -hmm. But then they're thinking about it a couple years later, and they say things like, 
Well, if daddy's brain was broken, how did he write a note? I don't have an answer for that. Yeah. That's part of what is so hard about suicide is so many missing answers. Yeah. As your kids were growing older and you're watching their grief kind of change, did it change your ideas about their grief? I mean, were, how did your ideas about their grief kind of evolve over time? I think like the kids, there's this like magical idea that we want to feel like there's a date certain on which we're healed and done. And then, okay, whew, we can take yeah. a deep breath. Because the statistics for kids who have lost a parent for any reason, not just suicide, and especially the younger the child is, and depending on if it's the same gendered parent or not, the statistics are terrifying. In like, terms of the kids dying by suicide? or In, in to... terms of the kids dying by suicide, in mm. terms of unhealthy um, coping behaviors, addiction, yeah. Yeah. Um, increases in incarceration. Yeah. And it can be very scary for the children and i mean the children didn't know the statistics i was the right. one looking at that um but it can be very terrifying yeah and there's this sort of fantasy thinking that okay if i get them to this point then they're going to be totally fine mm. but it doesn't end right like you said, it changes and it transforms and we transform along with it. And ideally, we turn into more compassionate, more open, more vulnerable, more generous mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Because I do think grief does that. Yeah. And sometimes people can't find that healthier way mm -hmm. to deal with grief. And there are a lot of toxic ways that people do deal with. Sure. Grief. Sure. And that is very scary. Mm -hmm. So helping, you know, trying to show the kids how, trying not to hide my grief from the kids. Um, it's a balance there too, right? Yeah. You don't want to overwhelm them with your own grief, but also don't want to give them the image, the idea that mommy doesn't think about daddy anymore. I remember Jason um, one night, shortly after Tim and I had gotten married, he said, Mommy, you don't even wish Daddy was back anymore. And I said, that's true. I don't wish he was back anymore because I, it doesn't make sense to me to wish for something that I can't have and to miss out on what I can have. And then he said, well, you don't even miss Daddy anymore. I said, that is a different question. Yeah. Right. I will always miss your father. And, and I still do, especially like on those days when they graduate or on the days when they're really struggling and suffering and sad. And when they do something that I wish their father could see. And do you acknowledge that to them? I do, but you know how the kids are. They're all different. Sometimes they want to hear that and sometimes they don't. Sure. There's no, <laughs> I wish there was a perfect recipe I know. I know. <laughs> because all the kids are different too. Well, part of what I really wanted to do with this podcast, when I set out, I wanted to talk to people like me who had had an early grief experience, but were now mature adults. And then I wanted to talk to parents of grieving kids today mm -hmm. to see how have things changed. Mm -hmm. And it's so, it's really gratifying to read a book like yours and to hear how beautifully parents today are supporting their kids. My dad, when, you know, he too married quickly after um, my mother died, he remarried and we just stopped talking about her. You know, mm. there were pictures up, 
they would definitely say, oh, but we left pictures up and we, we did talk about her. And sure, she would come up in conversation, but never did my father say anything to me like what you were saying. And I think that's so important. I think like I can feel in my body right now just talking about it, how much that still means to me mm. and how much it would have meant, you know, to hear him say, oh, I, I still think about your mom or I still miss her, or, you know. Yeah, um, or she would be so proud of you. Yeah, yeah. Those things are so, so impactful. So I think um, hearing and reading that you've done that and how much you kind of acknowledge the grief and and give them space mm-hmm. when they don't want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Or, um, I think that's all you can do. Now, this is, you know, my gen- this generation looking back going, I wish I'd had that, you know, they may have a lot of criticism of what you did when no doubt by the time <laughs> because obviously every generation really has different needs because um, we're changing and each time. child has a different perspective yeah. so when tim and i got married we had you know all four of our kids and it is very interesting to watch all four because they each grieve in their own way and they seem to be consistent to themselves over time and also unique from each other yeah can you give an example or two of that well one of our kids is especially stoic Mm. and that continues to be the case Mm -hmm. and there are always you know there are other griefs that happen as life goes on Mm. right there's there's disappointments and other deaths and some of the kids are more quiet in their grief and want to process sort of internally some like to have conversations Mm. and one of my stepsons when he was in high school i knew when he really needed me when he started talking about his mom because he knew I would listen to him talk about his mom. Mm. And I I told the kids, I am never going to try to replace your mother. I couldn't do that if I wanted to. But I do hope that someday we'll have our own thing. And Tim and I have been married now for almost 13 years. So I have been in their lives for now longer than their mother had been. And it's kind of a weird and beautiful place to be. So when Tim and I got married, our oldest, Gregory, um, was a senior in high school. You know, he was at a developmental stage where pushing away was the appropriate thing. And so that was really hard because I didn't get as much. I only had a year with him under the same roof. How old did you say he was? He was 17 when we got married. Okay. And we had talked to a therapist about like, when should we time Mm. this marriage? And he said, you should get married before Gregory goes off to college. Meanwhile, Gregory was saying, do whatever you're going to do after I go away to college. (laughs) (laughs) But the therapist said, get married before Gregory goes off to college so that he will have a home to return to that he understands what it is. And that made sense, right? That he would have, that he would know what it was. And it was weird. And I'm not his mom, but we would find our own. Gregory got married in October Mm. of this last year. And he asked me to choose a song for the mother-son dance, which Mm. was 
<laughs> I know, right? Yeah. It's pretty emotional and incredible. So, and again, it's not that I replace his mom, but I have been mothering him for a while. And yeah. we, and we, and now we have a very close relationship yeah. and, and that is really a special thing. Yeah. I feel like it's such an honor for me to be able to love these children. It Not the same as Debbie would have, of course, because we're different people, but um, sometimes, you know, when, especially when they were younger teenagers and it was hard, it was very helpful for me to remember that these were Debbie's babies and to try my best <laughs> to channel <laughs> that, you know, that yeah. maternal energy in yeah. their direction because teenagers are hard. Yeah. No, I mean, I think you can understand where the idea of the evil stepmother comes oh, from. Oh, for sure. Because there's, it's so much hard work. It's you so much hard work. And so she's much... an easy target. Since Tim and I had both been widowed, we were able to sort of scoop up all four kids. And that was really, um, it provided a real stability yeah. for our blended family yeah. of six. Yeah. That's something I want to ask about. Um, I grew up in a family that was uh, that would go to a Unitarian church mm. uh, every once in a while, <laughs> two times a year. <laughs> Actually, my parents started going regularly after uh, we were all out of the house. But as a kid, it really wasn't a big piece of my life, even though we were close with the minister and, and his family. But the act of going to church regularly was not a part of my life. And when my mother died, I know I kind of wished we had something like that. Mm -hmm. I wished I had some way to make sense of it, even if it felt kind of hollow or cliched, like something to hang on to um, that maybe I could have rejected later. Yeah. And then as an adult, I did kind of find my way to my own kind of faith. But I'm always curious about what it's like for families to grow up in a house where there is a kind of a strong religious practice, whatever it is, um, and if that helped. So I know you um, you can talk a little bit about your evolution um, through different religions, but just that act of going to church every week, I was really impressed in the book when I would read that, you know, your kids still through their adolescence would, go, I don't know if they went every week, but they would go to church with you regularly. Yeah, they did. We, we went pretty regularly. Um... There's a lot of toxic theology around death and dying, and in particular with suicide. So for example, when people say, oh, he's in a better place, my then six-year-old said, if daddy's in a better place, then shouldn't we go too? Which is logical and horrifying yeah. in the context of suicide. Yeah. I grew up in a very religious household. We went to church twice a week um religiously as it were and <laughs> um so i had always had sort of a spiritual framework through which i understood life i had a very hard time understanding sam's death through a spiritual framework and i was very angry more more at god than at sam and it turns out if if you do have a faith life, God is a really safe place to put mad. Mm. God can take it. Mm. And I feel like I have a pretty robust 
relationship with the divine. And so I wasn't afraid to tell God to take her own flying leap. Um, you know, I refused to darken God's door for a very long time. If she wants to come to me, she can make a house call. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> and I was okay having that kind of, of bickering yeah. with whatever the divine, whatever you want to call the divine. Um, right. I think church one of the best things about a regular attendance in church is the community yeah and that is very helpful to have people around who care to have people that you notice and are reminded that people are carrying a lot mm. as an adult it's helpful to remember that the kids it's not their job to carry stuff for other people but as an as an adult and as a parent looking around going yeah life is really hard and i don't believe that yarn that god doesn't give you any more than you can handle i think god routinely i think life routinely hounds out more than we can handle but we have each other yeah that's how we get through life is a team sport we are not meant to do this alone yeah our brains are not wired to be isolated from each other right. as as humanity requires each other. So for me, a regular a church attend, I did end up obviously finding my way back to God's house in whatever. <laughs> I've been to several houses. Yeah. <laughs> because for me, finding that community and being reminded that life is bigger than we can know. Mm -hmm. For me, that is helpful mm -hmm. in, I like knowing, I like checklists. I like being able to, you know, take the class, do the thing, yeah. control it. And so it's important, I think, for someone like me to be able to be in a space and realize that I don't have all the answers. I can't control all the things, mm -hmm. but I can, dig deep within and reach out to my community and and how did or i'm imagining that all of what you just talked about was communicated to your kids through modeling did you also talk about it did you talk about god did you talk about going to church was it an option was it yeah. mandatory like how did that work tim is a cradle catholic tim and his kids had grown up going to church every week baptized okay. first communion okay the whole Thing. I grew up as a Christian scientist. As I told you, after Sam's death, I stopped talking to God. And on about the first anniversary of Sam's death, one of my very dear friends who I'd been friends with since um, junior high, and also she happened to be my younger son's first grade teacher. Mm. So like what a gift that she was mm. with him every right. day that year it was wow. really incredible. And as soon as she invited us to go to church and brunch, I realized that I really wanted to. Mm. And the pastor speaking that day, the sermon was about Jacob and he had, um, betrayed his brother. He was returning home. And the night before he was going to see his brother, he was very worried. He stays up all night. He has this weird dream about a ladder and an angel. <laughs> and so he's wrestling with the angel. Some translations say it's a man and his, his thigh is 
out of joint or something. Anyway, he's wrestling with the angel. And the pastor is comparing this wrestling with the angel to his own struggles when his then very young son died from cancer and how angry the pastor was at God. And that anger was keeping him in relationship with the divine. And I thought a couple things. One, I thought, okay, that's a man who knows how much pain I'm in. And all those times I was calling God names, all God hears is that Charlotte's <laughs> calling, right? That's, I mean, yeah. as a parent, when my kids say things like, I wish you had died instead of daddy, like, I don't really think they wish I were dead. <laughs> <laughs> it hurts my feelings, but... I understand what they're saying is I'm in a lot of pain. Yeah. And so to uh, to feel in that moment that there was a presence that could understand that I was in a lot of pain and care, even if they couldn't fix it, mm. was deeply moving. So then I started going to the Presbyterian church. So with the kids, as Tim and I started dating and doing things together as a family, one of the things we would do was go to church and then to breakfast because there's something about breakfast that's kind of decadent. And do they all continue to do that in their young adulthood or are they? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are, I would say they're on a spectrum of um, agnostic to faithful mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and they all have a place somewhere there on this spectrum, which I guess we all do, right? Yeah. You give some examples in your book about how your kids express their grief as young kids. And they're such great examples. I love the story about the Legos. Um, how would you say you saw them expressing it as they grew older? Um, was it more through like questions they asked or behaviors, um, the relationship? Like how did, how did you see it being expressed in your teenagers and, and even young adults? Sometimes they'll it's interesting now they'll ask to see photographs we have some videos of debbie we don't have any videos of sam which mm. makes me really sad that we mm. don't we can't see him or hear him mm. moving uh, we have a lot of photographs it's interesting to me too that they will often reach out to aunts and uncles and cousins or grandparents to hear stories that maybe they haven't heard before or wonder what if the if they're facing a quandary or a decision or a difficulty wondering what that parent might have done what would mm. sam have done what would mm. debbie have done yeah. yeah well it's it's humbling to me too that love grows like yeah early on uh, the kids started asking about a stepfather. I should say my older son started asking about a stepfather because somebody had told him, you're the man of the house. Mm. He said, mommy, I need a stepfather because I'm too little to be the man of the house. Mm. I was like, yeah, yes, you are. Like who says that? Oh, to a what, eight year old? Eight years old. So no, sweetheart. Yeah, don't say that. Don't listeners. say that. <laughs> you're, the, you're the eight year old of the house. Your job is third grade and baseball and play. Back in 1899, that might have been true, but. Um... <laughs> I know, right? It's, wow. Yeah. Um, 
and but you know predictably one wants a stepfather the other doesn't and, right. um but what i remember telling them there is a daddy shaped space in your heart that will be there forever and nobody else is going to take over that spot because nobody else fits that's the daddy spot but the thing about love is our hearts grow and if somebody special comes into our lives our hearts will grow and there'll be a new space just for him and it doesn't take over the daddy space no. it's its own thing yeah and you know we have really lived our way to that place and they have a beautiful relationship with tim he is he's been in their life since they were 7 and 9 yeah as the step parent you can't expect to ever take up that same space or that kind of space. I think, I think that is, um, a, a weird pressure that a child can feel mm. that the step parent is, you know, wants that or something, even if it's just their imaginations, but somehow I think that idea gets, um, in their minds and that that might be part of why they're so protective, you yes. know, of the, of the, the specialness of their parent, but you're right. Like that, special relationship that every child has with their missing parent is it never goes away it never changes no. it only grows yeah yeah and it is it's it is a thing that only those two people can have and that's yeah. a beautiful thing yeah yeah and life keeps going and growing yeah. and what a gift it is to let yourself be loved by other people so, and to true. love other people yeah yeah, it sounds like you've just built such a great foundation for that with all four of your boys. Well, we do our best. It's yeah. not perfect, yeah. for sure. And we definitely, we have our moments still. Yeah. You talk a lot about um, therapy in the book, mm -hmm. which I loved. And I loved that there was some point when, like, there was so much... <laughs> It sounded like so much therapy bills. I mean, God, um, I know what that's like, but I was just wondering, I don't know what you would say about that in terms of how it really helped support your kids through the grief. Um, was it something you started early? I mean, just talk to me a little bit yeah. about how that worked or didn't. Well, my older child, um, the one who thought he was supposed to be the man of the house, um, he needed help right away mm. and so i we had tried a couple different things um that child hated the grief group mm. did not want to go mm. so i got him his own therapist and the younger one seemed like like you you know the only person who can do the work in therapy is the person who's going to therapy yeah. so if you don't want to do the work then don't waste the time yeah, be, right. or the money because right. it is work yeah and you have to you can't do it for anyone else they have to want to do it so danny started going right away and very quickly developed a real rapport with his therapist. His therapist was great. The first several times he wouldn't even get out of the car. Yeah. So she came to the car and did therapy in the car. Amazing. And I went into the waiting room, handed <laughs> her great. my car keys and, you know, yeah. went to the waiting room. And then for several weeks, um, he would be out of the car, but not in the office. And she, there were these hedges in front of the therapist's office and she brought out these giant hedge trimmers and so he just whacked at those bushes wow and 
So over time, you know, they, she just met him where he was. You know, to some people that might sound like, well, why would you pay for therapy to have some, you know, your kids like <laughs> do the gardening, but to have that witnessed by someone who's there to talk to you about your brain and how it's working and not working is so powerful for a kid. It I can think. be very powerful. Yeah. And somebody who's not necessarily your mother. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What were some of your biggest fears about raising your kids, you know, right after Sam died? Um, and what is your perspective on those anxieties now? In other words, like what would you want parents or caregivers going through something similar? to know? Well, I think the elephant in the room is their father's suicide and being afraid that they might die by suicide. Mm. And I think it's just really important to pay attention and to be as present as we can with each other as honest and transparent as we can with each other and stay connected to each other and teach the kids that when you need help, ask for help because life is not so easy yeah. and there are people who care. There are resources. Um, you don't have to ask your mom, although I am always available and happy to do whatever I can. Yeah. I think it's hard in general for people to ask for help. We prefer being the ones giving the help. Mm. But it's so important to have that capacity to, to be humble enough to ask when we need it, to know, to pay attention to themselves. Am I drinking too much? Am I not sleeping enough? Am I thinking thoughts that are scary and detrimental and not how I normally approach things? I think it's really important to pay attention. Do I feel excited about the day or do I dread it when I wake up in the morning and noticing, am I really myself? Mm. And if I'm not, then to reach out because there is someone on the other side of that reaching mm. probably more people than you even know. Yeah. Well, and I think for kids, especially it is so hard to ask for help so and to hard. know when you need it and to, we all are just really um, conditioned to think you should be fine. Right. But there are those moments that, it always takes your breath away and that's yeah. okay yeah like we said that's that's still the love yeah thank you so much charlotte this has been really a deep moving conversation i really appreciate it thank you Anne, so much for having these conversations i really do think being able to have these conversations saves yeah. lives yeah and enriches all of us so thank you for inviting me Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. Please um, tell your friends and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave comments on my Substack, which is called I'm Listening, and you can um, find that in the show notes. And special thanks to Josephine Wiggs for the music. It's from her album, We Fall.
Okay, this is the epilogue. <laughs> last, last thing in your book, you talk about the spiritual practice you do um, every day, and and it's about filling a bowl with water. Can you talk about that for a second? I just love that. Yeah, yeah. I have this bowl. It fills both hands, like it fits gently in both hands. So it's mm. bigger than a cereal bowl, but maybe not as big as a, a salad yeah. bowl. And so every morning, first thing in the morning, I turn on the faucet and, um, you know, if I'm in a rush, I turn it on high and fill it up pretty quickly, but I try not to do that. Um, So it's sort of a steady stream. And as the bowl is filling with water, I think about all the aspects of my life. I think about my health, how I'm feeling. I think about what I'm afraid of, what I'm worried about, what I'm struggling with. I think about what I'm grateful for, what I'm excited about. And I just think about all of it as the bowl fills. Once it's full, I set it on the kitchen counter where I see it as I pass by various points during the day. And it's just sort of a reminder to take whatever is happening that day. Maybe it's the air conditioning broke, or maybe it's a, a, maybe it's a podcast I'm excited about recording. (laughs) And I just remember to use all of it in the service of life that day, the good, the bad, what I'm afraid of, if the kids call and they're pissed about something or if they're excited about something, just to take all of it and in the service of life, what can I use in my life to serve what I encounter during the day? And then at the end of the day, the last thing before bed, I again, I hold the bowl in both hands and I consider the day, what I'm grateful for, what wasn't so fabulous, maybe a rejection, maybe a disappointment, maybe a pain. And then I release all of it. The kids, when they were little, they called this dumping mommy's worries down the drain. And then I turn the bowl upside down again on the side of the kitchen counter and it's a reminder to let it all go and to rest. Mm-hmm. And that practice has been so powerful mm-hmm. for me. I started that practice years before Sam died, but it's something that really grounds me in every day and reminds me to include all of it. And like facing into painful things, it, to me, I'd the the known is is less scary than the unknown. So just like holding all of it mm-hmm. and then letting it all go. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. Thanks. Thank you.